Hey, well, welcome. You're in the right place. Great to see you this morning. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, verse 21 through verse 33. Pastor Sean mentioned the, all the awesome things we have happening at Easter. Hope you can be a part of that journey there. And so I'm going to read, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 5 here, verse 21 through verse 33. And I'm going to ask you if you would stand to your feet. So in honor of the scripture here. Beginning in verse 21, reading from the New Living Translation, says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, and he is Savior of the body, the church. And as, Christ, as, as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your own husbands in everything. For husbands, this means you love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean and washed by the cleansing of God's word. And he did this to present her to himself a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. And no one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. And as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. And this is a great mystery. But it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You may be seated. And so this passage here has a ton of content about, about marriage. And so we're going to be unpacking marriage, but we don't really have time to do our normal thing of every verse unpacking. We would be here for hours and hours. But if you do some research on marriage... You go to Amazon.com and pull up the search bar and type in marriage. And then in, you, and then in the search bar and go and hit, hit that. A staggering number of books will come up. Over 150,000 books on marriage. Hundred, not, we're not talking chapters. We're not talking. We're, and these are contemporary books here. 150,000 books on, cha, on, on marriage. And then if you go and you do the same thing on dating, 27,000 books will come up. And so what does that tell you about culture when you have hundreds of thousands, sex is over 190,000. So what does that tell you about our culture today when we're trying to sort out relationships and companionship? It means this, it's really not working very well for us. We kind of stink at it. So we got to keep having more and more books, tens of thousands of books coming out all the time here. And so people are looking for answers. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a deeper dive into Ephesians chapter 5 and really on a couple verses here. There were some, uh, some children that were asked about marriage, and so we're going to unpack one of these books here of the 150,000. We're going to go to the experts, and they asked the kids how to make a marriage work. And so some of the wisdom of a seven, eight, and nine-year-old is this. Ricky says, tell your wife that she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> uh, don't write that down. Don't write that down. 
Don't write that down. Bobby says, Bobby H9 says, the wisdom of Bobby at age nine, be a good kisser. Right on, Bobby. He continues to say, it might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. Come on. And then Roger, verse 8, the wisdom of Roger, says this. He says, and I he says, don't forget your wife's name. That'll mess up the love. <laughs> right on, Roger. All right. So we're going to look at one chapter, Ephesians chapter 5 here. It has twice as much to say to the men as it says to the women. So we're going to do that. And so I want to recognize that this morning that sensitive subject, I want to recognize that we're students, that we are pre-married, we are widowed, we're post-married, we are singles, uh, we have never, some never been married. Paul, I would remind you, was unmarried, the one that wrote this here. And so our context here, I want to bring out to you, is not isolated. We're going to talk about marriage, but we've been talking for weeks here uh, about Ephesians and who we are to become. One of the things we've talked about is this. So we've talked about that in Christ, you take off the old and you put on the new, you put on Christ. That changes everything. Okay, that changes everything. Changes everything. So in the context of everything about you has been changed. We're going to unpack this. We talked about last week about how Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which means be being Filled, be continually, ongoingly filled. And we talked about how that means, hey, you need to be topped off, baby, with the Holy Spirit, okay? So in the context of being topped off with the Holy Spirit, in the context of putting on Christ now, we're going to unpack what has to say here about marriage. And I think this is really important. I know we come from all different backgrounds, but I just want to be very honest and transparent with you. I don't feel like an expert. I didn't grow up in an atmosphere of, of model, exemplary marriages. Both parents on my end were married three times. My grandmother was married five times. That was kind of how it was in Colin's world is just failure. And so I grew up with great fears of marriage because all I saw was just these cycling marriages here. And so you have your story of what you grew up with. But I want to remind us, regardless of what we grew up with, that now, okay, now if you're a Christ follower, okay, you are in Christ, you've been topped off with the Holy Spirit, and this changes everything. And so he says to put on Jesus. He says you're sons and daughters of God. In the context of you're adopted into his family here. God is working within you. We talked about walking in the light. We talked about walking in the spirit. And so uh, that you live a spirit-filled life. And now continuing that thought, what does that look like when it comes to marriage? And so we're going to unpack that here this morning. And so God has a perfect plan. And there is no plan B. God just has one plan. We're going to talk about that one plan here. God created marriage that it really wouldn't fail when it's done his way. It was created not to survive, but it was created to to, uh, thrive here. So in your notes there, you have a 100% chance of success in marriage. God created marriage, he created it this way, that we would have a 100% chance. So I just want to recalibrate our thinking here and then look at verse 25 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, on the screens there, or in your Bibles, or in your smartphones. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and he gave up his life for her. Gave up his life here. And so then what he's talking about here is this idea of sacrifice being a lifestyle. It's an all-the-time thing. And he says, to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? But then he died for the church. He was killed for the church. That's how Jesus loved the church. Cost him, laid down his life over no masaki, okay? So he was killed. So it says, husbands, you're to imitate. We talked about last week. You're to imitate. You're to follow the example there of an unselfish Jesus that laid down his life for the church. Marriage is designed to kill you and to kill self. Now listen to me. And as soon as you die to self, you'll have a better marriage, a wonderful marriage, the scripture is saying here, if you think about it, a wonderful marriage is on the other side of having died. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for it. So when you die, you're willing to die. You're willing to give up your life. Now life can come to the marriage. And, see, and I say this because we think of marriage, especially in our cultural context, about meeting all of our needs and all. Well, in the first place, there's no human being that can meet all your needs. Only God can meet all your needs there. And so if you have this idea that all of your needs are going to be met in this one person, you are setting yourself up for great disappointment because only God can meet all the needs of the human experience here. Only God can do that. But husbands, love your wives. A command and not a suggestion. So what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? We, we, in our culture, we have ideas of what that means. And we can be so casual about it that I wanted to unpack that a little bit. Because in our culture, we can say, I love vanilla lattes, you know. I love iced mocha chocolate drinks here. How about this? I love In-N-Out. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. I love, the speaker this morning loves In-N-Out. I love to go to the movies by a show of hands. How many people? I love to work out and go to the gym. All two of us there in total shape. I love CrossFit. I love Zumba. I love social media. Come on, get them up. Ah, you get them up. I love social. I love Instagram or Facebook. I love get them up online shopping. Yeah, okay. The energy in the room just exploded when I said that. I love March Madness. I love football. I love watching basket. Okay, see, we love, I love taking vacation. Yeah. All right. How about this? I love reading. All right. I love making memories with my family. Right on. So see, we all have a good sense of love, don't we? There are things we love here. But when the Bible says husbands love your wives, completely different idea. Absolutely unique here. Utterly unique idea here. And notice, uniquely given to the man. It doesn't say wives love your husbands, although that's inferred and understood. But it says husbands alone 
no one else, no scripture that commands a wife to love her husband. There is none. God wants men to learn to love their wives here. And so what the New Testament does uses very distinguishing words. It's a much more complex language than, than English language. And so what happens, the author then differentiates the very word love that he's talking about here. And he didn't use cultural words. He didn't words that he could have used words that he could have thrown out there. In that culture, they would, when they would say love, oftentimes they would say, I eros you. In other words, I'm lusting after you. In other words, it's kind of a sensual, passionate, sexual thing going on. But he doesn't say that. He does not say, husbands, eros your wives. Just love them in a passionate, sexual, sensual way. He doesn't use that when he talks about love. And then he also doesn't use a very common word for love was what? Don't phileo your wives or, or to be good friends, to be I am your friends. We share in common and all. He doesn't use that common word there. Rather, he goes to a word which would be most intimidating, staggering there in that culture, absolutely staggering the word that he would use. Because Paul reaches down and pulls something that had divine implication, and he says, husbands are to agape, to love with absolute, totally unselfish love. Again, in the context of you have put on the new man and you are being topped off with the Holy Spirit, that's the only way you can do this. Because you can never give something you haven't received. You can never give agape if you haven't received agape. Only in that context here. And so agape is so unique. It nothing, has nothing to do with what the other person does. For God so agape loved the world that hated him, that had, was not pursuing him, God so loved the world that he gave. Okay, so this is what it means here. Husbands not eros, husbands not phileo your wives, but husbands agape your wives here. Has nothing to do with what you would ever get in return here. God so demonstrated his love for us, his agape, and that while we were yet sinners, hating God, he loved us. That's what it's talking about here. So it says, husbands, love your wives just as, just as Christ loved the church. I want to talk about that for a minute here. Because when you think it's just as, he loved every day. Right? Did Jesus take any days off from loving the church? No, Jesus didn't take any days off, did he? So he didn't love one week, take a week or two or a month off there. But love then is, marriage is every day. It's an everyday thing. How many people have discovered it's an everyday thing? And so love then is every day. Marriage is daily. But here's what I know about the men. Here's what I know about men. Is men, we have in our minds, we can fabricate this point system. How many people know where I'm going here, what I'm talking about? This point system. And I find myself even jokingly, and I kind of had to stop doing it because I was doing it a little too much. Hey, how, like, how many, you know, I did this, how many points was that? Kirsten's like, would you just knock it off? And so, uh, but we can have this thing where we kind of think in terms of a point system. Where how do you get points? What's ways to accumulate some points? Help me out. What are some ways you might accumulate points? What? What? Flowers, yes, thank you, Mike. Flowers, how's the way? Come on. 
Okay, help the brother out. Help the brother out. What, what are some ways we could get some points? How about take her on a date? Take her on a trip? Take her to Hawaii? Come on. Buy her some jewelry. Give up a, give up the remote. Yeah, come on, baby. Go shopping with her. Come on. Is that points, ladies? Or are we getting some points? That's what I'm talking about. So, so what men do here is men want to accumulate lots of points so we can live off the accumulated points. <laughs> but it says husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. But he didn't do a point system. He loved the church all the time. He didn't accumulate a bunch of points there and then take a break. And the problem with the mental point system is that in a man's mind, he thinks that he's banking a bunch of good behavior points. But in the woman's mind, all the points evaporate at midnight. (laughs) Am I telling the truth? They evaporate at midnight every night. (laughs) So Jesus loves the church every day. Loves the church every day. Marriage is an everyday deal. And I say this is so important to recognize this. It is every day. It is in the trenches, the blood and the sweat and the tears every day in the trenches there because marriages are not about two perfectly wired up, perfectly compatible people who, who, who have this amazing natural chemistry and it just happens and they live happily ever after. But we're imperfect, and we're wired to struggle. We are wired to struggle. And you may not be happy this morning. This morning you may be facing dark times. This morning you may be in a rough patch. This morning it may have already been a nosedive in the rearview mirror. Or you may be lonely, or you may be bored, or you may be unfulfilled. You may be hiding. You may be pretending. You may be limping through marriage. You may be in a marital hell. You may be living with resentment layered on top of resentment or conflicts on top of conflicts here or disappointment on tops of disappointment. So how are you ever going to have a good marriage if if man don't begin by loving Christ or loving their wives as life as Christ loved the church and gave himself? You may be in a situation where it feels like a barren wasteland, where it's brown grass everywhere and you look off in the distance and we always hear about the grass is greener on the other side and you you think, yeah, it's pretty brown around here. It's pretty wasteland around here. The grass always, I just want to say, I just want to speak into this cultural saying that maybe what you need to do is you need to water your own yard every day. Grass goes brown because it doesn't get watered. It needs to be watered every day. The best marriages are, are just two very different people. They're very different people. So different that every single DNA in your, in your body is different. You're utterly different here. And so you're, you're incompatible. But if you, if you stay together and you work it out and you try there, great marriages can, can, can rise from the ashes of, of that existence there. And it doesn't happen when it's accidental, but it happens when it's intentional there. 
And let me just also say about this whole concept about the grass greener on the other side, everything always looks better from a distance. Relationships in other people's lives, they, they can look better from a distance, but you never see what's in the grass. Think about that. You, you never, from a distance, you can't, you can't see the, the weeds in the grass there. From a distance, you know, you can't, you can't see when a, when a dog there does his thing there, you know, and drops a bomb in the grass. You can't see that. Maybe you hit it with a lawnmower and you find out what is there, but you know what I'm talking about. Just get a mental picture of that. Okay, let's reel it back in. So God's perfect plan for marriage is this, in your notes here. It says, husbands, lay down your, your life for your wife. God's plan is to prioritize or reprioritize your marriage. I think for the husband, sometimes it means to recognize that lay your life down, that I come second. That I'm not here to serve myself, but I'm here to serve somebody else. This really, this really is my job description. Before God, this is my job description. And so I have to sacrifice. That means maybe you, you might have to, to consider how much you do your hobby or your golf or your sports or an event or an opportunity or a promotion. And I may have to sacrifice something so that her needs can be met. That's what it's saying here. I love the story where March Madness, for those of you that aren't sports fans, March Madness is when much of America goes crazy because it's college basketball season. I will remind you that our local team, UC Irvine, just beat Kansas State to advance. Come on. And it is my alma mater. But let me say this. I just want to say this about the great Coach John Wooden. This is his picture right here. This is John Wooden. Those of you that don't know John Wooden, John Wooden's the greatest basketball coach of all time. He won 10 NCAA championships. He had four teams that went undefeated 30 and 0. He won seven NCAA championships in a row. He's probably the most quoted uh, uh, coach ever, revered coach ever, Coach John Wooden. When he wrote the, the, uh, the, the, the the success pyramid that is used by many teams today. He's an absolutely brilliant, revered man. He was married to his wife, Nellie, and she died after 53 years of marriage. And they wanted to honor Coach Wooden at the Poly Pavilion. They wanted to call the basketball court the John R. Wooden Basketball Court. And he said, I'll have nothing to do with that. It will be called the John and Nellie Wooden. John and Nellie Wooden. And it is known to as this day as a John and Nellie Wooden basketball uh, arena there. So his wife died after 53 years, and he lived to be like about 100. So he lived for another uh, 25 years. So what he did on the 21st of every month is he went to Forest Lawn, and he visited his wife there at Forest Lawn 25 years. What he did for 25 years is on the 21st of the month is he would write a note to his wife, to his deceased wife. And he'd write a note there. In every single note, he'd tell her, I miss you, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again. He was a Christ follower. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. And he'd take those letters. You didn't know this about John Wooden, did you? He'd take those letters, and on his bed... He would put them on, the, on where she slept. And for 25 years, he wrote letters to his wife, 
right there and had a stack until he couldn't see of, of over 300 letters, unopened letters to his wife, Nellie. That's a husband loving his wife right there. Just remember, remember that, that. What a great man. And so what he would do is, every time he'd write the letter, he'd untie, he'd untie it, the whole stack of letters, put the next letter in there, and he would tie that up every month for 25 years. God's perfect plan for marriage, husbands love their wives, prioritize their wives here. And so be like John Wooden is what I'm saying. Verse 28, in the same way, in the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Now he's laying another layer to this, to this understanding here. For a man who loves his wife actually loves himself. So he adds another layer of responsibility here where every, like men, we get it about feeding our own bodies. Come on. Sometimes we feed our own bodies a little too much. And so, but husbands feed your wives on every level is what he's saying. On every level. On an emotional level, on a spiritual level, physical level, to feed, to care for, to nourish, to cherish on every level here. So then he says, verse 33, so again I say, each man love his wife. He's like, hey, don't miss it. I keep telling you the same thing here and the same word. Agape your wife as he loves himself and his wife must respect her husband. So what does this mean? Why the love and respect thing? And why pointed to each one individually here, a wife to be loved, a husband to be respected? Why would God say that in his infinite wisdom? Well, there's something about our temperaments. There's something about how we're made. There's something about how we're wired up here, unique to the sexes that he then stresses here, because of course both sexes need love and respect, of course. But having said that, Men run on respect, and women run on love here. You can think of it maybe as two types of cars, where you have, a di- you have two types of fuels. You have diesel, you have petrol. And so what it's saying here is, husbands, you want to know how to fill her tank? Yeah, you fill her tank with love. Hey, wives, you want some wisdom from God? This is how you fill his tank called respect. That's how, and so men run on respect, women run on love. That's how you do it here. And so we're talking emphasis on a basic level here that we need to respect. Men are told to love and women are told to respect here. A woman's greatest need then is love. A man's greatest need is respect. A man's greatest need is so both of these are incredibly powerful and both of these are incredibly potent. And if we understood them, it wouldn't need to be talked about here. Because what happens is a wife feels unloved and when she feels unloved, she reacts okay, in ways that may be disrespectful to her, to her husband. And when he feels disrespected, he may react in ways where she feels unloved. And so a woman loved by her husband will grow in loveliness. A husband who is respected by his wife will become more respectable. And now think about this. We're told to do things that we might not otherwise do. We might not otherwise do these. 
Because it becomes very natural for a woman to love. It's very natural for a man to respect. It's not as natural for a woman to respect, and it's not as natural for a man to love. So Paul, unmarried, receiving inspiration from the Holy Spirit, God speaking to him about what to say, says, hey, tell them this. I know it's not easy to respect your husband. I know it's not always easy to, res- to, to love your wives. So Paul, tell them that. God's perfect plan in your notes, a wife respects her husband. So let me just say this. This is the key to a man's heart. It's a key to a man's heart. And notice Paul doesn't like qualify what he has to do to respect, to gain respect. He just says, wives, respect your husbands. And so men will become their best self in an atmosphere of respect. They will. Let me tell you about men. I'm telling the ladies, telling the guys already know this, but I'm going to tell you how it works here. This is not just a need for men. This is a mega need. This is a colossal need here. And so what happens is how relationships get undermined and how men shut down and how men back off and the lights will be on, but nobody will be home when they're disrespected here because it's hard for, and I know it's hard to understand this, but sometimes just the tone that you speak in, okay, the least attitude of disrespect affects us more than we could ever tell. More than we could ever tell here. And so when I, was, when I was playing sports in high school and I was playing baseball, we played on, it was the top team in the United States. We went on to be a number one ranked team in the, in the U.S., incredibly gifted players, phenomenal team, talent and all. And so and I was on that team and I was a backup catcher. I was a backup catcher. Uh, one day I felt like the coach disrespected me. And he said this. He said, he said what happened to Collins? And they, and they said, he got a single. Where'd he get a single to? They said, right field. And he said, and he swung late. He, did, he swung late. He didn't ask if I wanted to do that. He swung late. And he, assumed, and he like said that. And I said, you know what? I'm done with this coach. He disrespects me. I'm done. That's how much it can affect, uh, I'm a 14 or 15-year-old boy, that's how much it can affect you. I could play my whole life, that moment, I'm done with you. I'll do, I'll play another sport. You see, respect is a huge thing here. And, the, and I want to say this here. When you're, when you're respectful, you become more attractive to your husband. You become more attractive to him. See, respect is so powerful in a man's world that the Bible even says this. It says you can change his behavior without even saying a word. Imagine that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. You can change your husband without even opening your mouth here in ways that you, you couldn't imagine by your behavior. Not with your mouth there. And so some of the ways here, let me just give you a few ways how you can respect, how we can respect men. And they, of course, would apply to both sexes. But uh, one way is just your attitude, just your tone, your disposition. And I think for some people, you say, what do I do? I don't have, in my, in my eyes, my husband's not respectable. Well, you can ask God to give you an attitude of respect. You can ask God to help, help your heart there. So um, it doesn't say, don't respect your, or respect your husband on these conditions. It just says respect. Because here's, and here's the point I think, I think is really important. It's what we focus on. And we can focus on, you can focus on what your husband does well, 
what he's good at, what he's right at, what he's honorable at, instead of the things that drive you crazy. Not saying that husbands don't drive you crazy. I'm saying, look, we can focus on things that are positive there. And so attitude, appreciation there. What is it you appreciate about him? You can always find something that you appreciate there. Maybe it's affirming, affirming the effort. And it's, and it's the big context here, which is so important here that I want to tease out of this. So because if the feeling is that there is a, a, an atmosphere of criticism and I can't do anything right, he will be the worst version of himself. You'll get the worst version of himself there. But if you just affirm, even though I'm not saying there's not mistakes, I'm not saying we don't confront, I'm not, I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying the big picture here, the big picture is one of, of discouragement and one of demoral, demoralizing culture and criticism. They'll shrink back and you'll get the worst version of that man. But what you do is you speak what he can't be. Speak what he can be. And I do this with men. I do this uh, around here. You probably even heard me say it to some of you in here. And so, because men will respond to that. They'll respond and they'll rise up to who they can be and to who others believe that they can be there. So the last thing that I want to say about this, about respecting, is sometimes we just need to give one another a little space where, of course, you married a man who's imperfect. He's full of imperfections here. And he's going to fail. But I think how we allow people to fail is the big deal. How we allow men to fail, where we give them uh, some space and some grace to, to fail as an imperfect man there. And so, um, because if we don't, the most damaging thing is how uh, men are responded to. That's what can be damaging. It can have long-term implications here. And so, because um, he knows he has failings. He knows that he screws up here. He knows, we know we have, you know, worse qualities but if you can communicate that without being critical, you will do a lot for him. The Bible says in Proverbs 21, I just remind us, that there is life and death, life and death in the power of the tongue. I want to read you a letter a woman writes about her journey of respecting her husband. It's written by Kay Warren. Her husband is the great Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback. She said this. She said, we've beaten the odds that divorce would be the outcome of our ill-advised union. We've weathered my breast cancer and melanoma. We've survived the mental illness and suicide of our son, Matthew. And we know. What do we know? And we know, and we know we are the best thing that has ever happened to each other. And I'm in love with the man God brought into my life so many years ago. Each of us is not who the other person was looking for, but each of us is who the other desperately needed to become the person that we are today. Yes, it's also been the very best thing that has ever happened to either one of us. We wouldn't be who we are today without each other. The shrieks of iron sharpening iron have often sounded like gears grinding on base metal. But the result has been profound personal growth in both of us. That's her journey, respecting her husband. And so God's job description then, in your notes there, God's perfect plan, a husband 
loves his wife. We're going to conclude with this. I said men are called to give themselves away. Selfless, sacrificial servanthood toward their wife. I want to tell a story about a husband who put his wife first. And I think it's just a, such a great story that encapsulates this whole idea. So rather than taking multiple cuts at it from different angles, I'm going to give you a story which captures what this is talking about here, a husband loving his wife. And so let me begin this way in that I've, I've gone to Africa many times and I learned about the African culture that they have a dowry system. And for those of you that, and it's real, it's not a joke, it, it is real. And so one time I was doing a surgery on a little girl preparing to do that. She was 14. And as soon as I was beginning to, to get ready to do it, her dad stopped me, came up to me and stopped me and said, no surgery. And I said, why? And then through an interpreter, and the interpreter said, no dowry. I'm, I'm not thinking dowries. I'm just thinking of helping this person here. And they said, see, without it, without, if she loses her teeth, she won't get married. If she doesn't get married, he's not going to get his cows. You can't do anything for her. And so we made other arrangements. And then later that day, I was sitting at a, a table having dinner or lunch with the family, and Duncan's wife was there. And she was all sparkly, and she was, she was just like Miss Uganda. I mean, she was just, you could tell, she just was, was happy and sitting straight up and had a hat on and everything at the table and just all dressed up. And, and she, she went on to tell me, I asked her about her relationship with Duncan, and she, she went on to tell me what the dowry cost for Duncan to marry her. And she said, I can't remember the exact numbers, but she listed how many cows. She listed how many goats, a specific, like six goats. And she even told me how many chickens that it cost him to win her over. So having said that, true story in 1988, Reader's Digest, there was a man who was nicknamed Johnny Lingo. You can Google it. It's a true story. Page 138 there in Reader's Digest originally. And so there was a woman there that was on the island. And her name was Mahalo or Sarita. And Sarita there was brutalized by her dad, verbally, emotionally. And so to look at her, she had the stringy hair, the slumped down shoulders. She was just a mess there. You could feel the oppression there. Uh, she was beaten down. She was told she would never achieve anything in life. She was disheveled. She was abused. And one day, Johnny Lingo wanted to have a wife. And he was wealthy. He was a trader. So Johnny Lingo went to her dad's house, knocked on the door, and said, I want to marry Mahalo. I want to marry Sarita. He said, and I want to give you a dowry. And the father in that culture, there had never been more than four cows ever given on that Polynesian island. Never more than four cows. And he thought in his mind she's probably a one cow, maybe a two cow dowry. And Johnny Lingo says, he said, I want to give you eight cows. The guy just could, was, could not believe it. He said, this is a joke. He said, no, it's not a joke. I want to give you eight cows. In a culture where there had never been more than four cows given. I want to give you eight cows. And that made the poor man rich. He said, look, the eight cows are right there. He said, you may have Mahalo. You may have Sarita. 
Well, it bothered him because he abused, he abused his daughter. And it bothered him for two years. It bothered him so much that he went to the other side of the island because he could no longer take it, figure, trying to figure out, why did he give me eight cows when Mahalo was maybe a one or a two cow dowry? So he went to the other side of the island and he knocked on the door. And he knocked on the door and the door opened like he couldn't believe who was it. He didn't know who was in front of him. And it was his daughter. And she had beautiful black hair. And she, and she was standing up in such a way that you could see her, her, you know, her, her outline and all there. And she was striking, drop dead, beautiful, they're ravishing, stunning woman in front of him. And, and, he, and, he, and he couldn't imagine it was her. And he said, mahalo. He said, can I talk to Johnny? And so he said, so he's in the presence of Johnny. And he says, Johnny, um, she's flourished, you know. And previously, she thought she was worth nothing here. And so he said, he said, why did you do that? Why did you give me eight cows when it never been? Why did you do that for Mahalo? And Johnny said this, I always wanted to have an eight-cow wife. <laughs> and he said this, the most important thing was for Mahalo to wake up every day and know that she is the most valuable woman on this island. And see, and husbands, agape your wives so that she'll wake up every day and know she's the most valuable woman on the island. That she is an eight-cow woman. <laughs> That's really all, all I got about there. So in your notes, let me just conclude with this. Women lean to be more emotionally unguarded, and men lean to be emotionally Guarded. Let me just say this before we, we wrap up. So men come, just, men come emotionally unassembled. That's how you get us. And so we come with our histories. We come with pain. We come with hurt. We come just with how we are. And most men, most men are lean toward they're more bottled up. And so. So the implication is this, is that men are born not as natural talkers, like it can be painful to talk. And we struggle with that. It can be excruciatingly difficult to talk, excruciatingly difficult. And so what must men do, though? What must we do? Because husbands love your wives to wives that like to talk. Men, I'm just telling you that you have to move in the direction. We've got to learn to cough it up and learn to talk. And, and, and because I get it, like, uh, we just want to give always the headlines. Just want to give a little yes, no, grunt, groan. Hey, how was your day today? I saw Bob. Uh, and nothing. 
That was it. I, I saw Bob. But trying to connect. Husbands, love your wives by talking to your wife. Here's what she wants to hear. How was your day? I got up at 6.32 a.m. this morning. (laughs) In a state of maybe altered consciousness. I had my eyes closed, but I was feeling a little bit emotional still about the meeting that I had with Bob the day before. At Susie's Diner, where I had tomato soup, salad, ranch dressing, and pickles on the side, and passion fruit iced tea. And so, man, we kind of think, oh, I can't do, you know, it's like all going to be feeding that, feeding that. And so... And information's the worst thing. I just want to say that as one, one struggler to another, one beggar to another, is that we have to engage, maybe have an internal slugfest to try to get on the other side and to learn to talk. Because um, the reality is, husbands love your wives. You have to talk to do that. Stay tuned in. Engage, connect. And the other thing that's excruciatingly painful is to let yourself be seen, and to let yourself be known. It's painful. And so, but recognize that that is what needs to happen. And really, it's just an attitude that we need to embrace. And so, I'm closing with that. I'm closing with that. We'll be better off if we can go in that direction. So in your notes there, you have some homework. Husbands, wives, singles, all of that. Remember, the easiest person to change in any relationship is you, is me. Let's stand to our feet. And Father, um, thank you for this morning. Thank you for every person here. Pray, Lord, for those that perhaps are not in a relationship, maybe single, maybe they want to have a spouse, that you would bring that person into their life that would love them and comfort them and bless them. And Father, I pray that where we need to make changes or repent that we would do that, husbands would be able to love, to be humble, to act in accordance with your word. And see the fulfillment of your promise. That you would pour out your blessing upon us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.